1: One of the hardest things for me as a writer is not taking shortcuts. And I think there's a lot of pressure when you're writing to take shortcuts. And I find that stuff only works and only really comes alive when you take the time to unpack it, to really see it fully, to really see the scene, to un, you know, to, to know the backstory of this family. It's never going to appear on the page, but I have to know that stuff. And you, you can see it on a line-by-line basis sometimes. You'll read people say, you know, he had an angry expression on his face. Well, what does that look like? You know, um, there were seven or eight trees around the house. Was it seven? Is it eight? G- give, give me one. It, which one is it? Or, or there were a lot of old tires leaning against the side of the garage. Well, what's a lot? 50, 100? Were there a thousand old tires leaning against that garage? That's a very different image than three. Tell me what I'm looking at.
0: And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning New York Times best-selling author and screenwriter, Grady Hendrix, spoke with me about getting serious about horror, turning genre tropes on their head, and his latest, How to Sell a Haunted House. Grady is an award-winning novelist, screenwriter, and journalist, best known for My Best Friend's Exorcism, adapted into a feature film by Amazon Studios and the New York Times bestsellers The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires and The Final Girl Support Group. His latest is How to Sell a Haunted House, a number one indie next-list pick described as a novel that explores the way your past and your family can haunt you like nothing else. The New York Times called it a gripping, wildly entertaining exploration of childhood horrors, and Esquire called it an authentically frightening, genuinely funny reconfiguration of what a haunted house can be. New York Times bestselling author Chuck Wendig said of the book, A spirited nightmare story about death, but also what comes after. Grief, guilt, family secrets, and estate administration. Oh, also did I mention the evil puppets. Grady Hendrix's work is currently in multiple phases of adaptation at HBO and others for both feature film and streaming. In this file, Grady and I discussed how his novel about a haunted Scandinavian furniture store launched his fiction career. Perseverance in writing what you know, stripping down the horror genre to its core, the importance of sucky drafts, why haunted house stories are always about families, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Yes, yeah, so we are back on The Writer Files. I am very honored today to be joined by New York Times bestselling an award-winning horror writer, Grady Hendrix, is joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time to do this, man.
1: Thanks for having me. I uh, I love to talk, so you are going to be the victim of my ego today.
0: <laughs> Perfect. That sounds like uh, a great way to kick things off. I want to talk about all things writing, the writing life, and the writer's ego, and alter ego, etc., um, but yeah, let's let's kick it off um, just with a little bit of uh, your superhero origin story. You know, I understand you've been at this for quite a while and had a career as a journalist, screenwriter. You've written nonfiction, of course, uh, quite a bit of lauded fiction, and I want to talk about all the latest. But yeah, catch us up a little bit on on kind of how you got here because um, it's no small feat now that your titles uh, are you know are, are matching the size of. name or sometimes your name is is bigger than the title uh, on these fantastic covers but talk about uh yeah your your kind of ascension
1: well i mean you know it never feels like an ascension right like i i I just bumble along doing my thing um but i started out uh I, i got into writing because it was sort of like the loneliest art form like i didn't need anyone else to do it uh, it wasn't like making a movie where you had to convince people to show up on set and you needed money from somewhere or even theater where you had to convince people to learn lines and show up. And and I, I was I was being a freelance journalist for a while in New York in the early 2000s and doing cultural coverage. And when 2008 hit with the financial crisis, those jobs are the first ones to go. I mean, they've just, <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to replace you with a staff writer who just will write twice as much as they used to. And. I was sort of I was in my 30s and really didn't have any other skill. And I tried writing fiction. I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. And it wasn't really going anywhere. And I was still doing a fair amount of freelancing. I just got paid a lot less. And I wound up going to the Clarion Sci-Fi and Fantasy Workshop, which is a six-week program out of UC San Diego. It's been around for decades. And that really changed my life. Um, you're one of, I think I was t- one of 26 people who were in the program. And each week, there's a different author who's the teacher. We had Holly Black one week, Paul Park, Kim Stanley Robinson, Elizabeth Han, Larissa Lai, and uh, Bob Cray, Robert Cray. And um, I had to get serious. I had always been sort of like very sort of snarky about writing. And I think that was my own insecurity. And I was surrounded by these other people who took it really seriously. And I, I had to. I had to. They were better than me and younger than me and more well-read than I was. And after that, it was a lot of freelancing still and writing. And eventually, I la- I did a couple of co-authored books, some self-published books. And I did um, Horror Store with Quirk, which really, the then girlfriend, now wife of one of my Clarion comrades, uh, I, we were friends. And she was an editor, and she interviewed for an editorial position at Quirk. And they said, well, who are some writers you'd bring over? And she said, well, Grady Hendricks and so she didn't get the job but the editor she interviewed with called me and said i got anything i had a couple of trunk novels so i sent him one which he hated but then he was like look i want to do this sort of revisionist haunted house thing and we started talking about retail big box stores and he said you know one of us said uh i think it was him who said what about nikea and we were like oh my god and so then it was just sort of figuring that out and going from there and and, you know, and, and I was at Quirk for a long time and I didn't have any representation. I actually landed that horror store contract in Quirk at the time, even though my contract was a regular contract, uh, Quirk was known as a work for hire house and my contract was not for much money. And, um, and I think it was like, was it $10,000, might've been 12, somewhere in there. And I couldn't find an agent. I, I wrote a bunch of places and said, look, I got this contract. I don't know what I'm doing. And I couldn't find anyone. And so I just kind of represented myself and learned how to read contracts and I made tons of terrible mistakes. I wouldn't recommend it. And it wasn't until I did Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires until I was almost done with that book that a guy I knew in LA took me out to lunch and he liked my books and he was like, you don't have any representation. And he introduced me to some people who introduced me to people and and so, and that really changed my life to have a lawyer, and, and, then, and then a manager, and, a, and an agent, and um, and then you know I moved to Berkeley, and um, they really believed in me, and um, I mean Quirk did too, but moving to Berkeley they did as well, which I was lucky. And you just keep going. And at this point, it's funny. Um, I, I try to do something in each of my books that's something I want to deal with that I don't know the answer to. That usually isn't doesn't matter to the reader. I, it's my own thing. But I also try a technical challenge with each of them. So like horror story, I just wanted to see if I could do it. With my best friend's exorcism was the first time I really, really was like trying to write about my life and real life and the life I saw around me. Not in a way that I thought would make a good story, but in a way that felt real and really, you know, reading old letters and journals from high school and and going on. And we sold our souls. It was like, can I write about music? Can I write lyrics? And with Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, it was, can I write about someone who has children i don't have kids and with final girl support group can i write in first person and with how to sell a haunted house is like can i write a family i've never written a family all my characters have mostly been only children so you know it's always i'm always trying to pull some technical challenge off so i mean ascension's a nice thing to say but generally if you just keep doing something long enough something will happen and I've been lucky enough to get enough swings, swings of the, at the bat to to connect. But for me, it's always about trying to figure out that technical challenge.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I know you've talked about that. Yeah, I want to talk about how to sell a haunted house, but also going back to And you had mentioned My Best Friend's Exorcism, which, of course, uh, became this great um, adaptation over at Amazon, right? Uh, Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned that this was kind of part of a a trilogy. So that kind of kicked off that trilogy about your hometown or, as you mentioned, kind of something that was a little bit closer to home for you. But yeah, so talk about the kind of the evolution from My Best Friend's Exorcism to how to sell a haunted house. And I want to talk about this. uh, Yeah.
1: Well, you know, my best friend's exorcism, I set that in the neighborhood where I grew up because I needed those details. It wasn't like, Oh, my childhood's so interesting, but I just needed to write about a place I knew because I really needed, I needed the place. If you're going to write a book where, where someone gets possessed and, you know, vomits a tapeworm, like it's gotta be super grounded and feel real to people. Who are reading it and that was the most real i knew is my high school my house my my childhood you know my friends and i did it again with how to uh southern book club's guide to slaying vampires best friend's exorcism was about high school and high school friendships and my best fr- uh southern book club's guide to slaying vampires was about um adult friendship which is more complicated and it was about my mom's book club to some extent and and sort of getting to know these women from you know my friends' moms and these annoying women my mom hung out with to actual <laughs> human beings, you know, who had lives. And then with uh, How to Sell a Haunted House, it's, you know, the first was about high school. The second was about parenthood to some extent. And the third's about, you know, the kind of relationships. What I'm going through in my life right now with my sisters is when your parents pass away and both our parents are both really old and having health issues and, you know, we're, their mortality is front and center. And, we sort of have to figure out how do we navigate us? Like, how do we have a relationship with each other once our parents are gone? What is that going to look like? Like, what's once the central unifying factor is gone, what, what's there? And, you know, and, and after that, I'm not sure I want to write another Charleston book because I think I've said everything I have to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, let's talk about the latest. Of course, the reception has been... Really, really great to see um, some fantastic blurbs and, of course, uh, amazing reviews. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, talk a little bit about the reception and how you're feeling now because, I mean, your peers kind of came out of the woodwork to to say some really nice things about it and yes. about you as a writer. I thought uh, Chuck Wendig's nice uh, comment here. I'll just read it. A spirited nightmare story about death, but also what comes after grief, guilt, family secrets, and estate administration. Oh, also, did I mention the evil puppets? Of course, no, no spoilers here. And and I mean, there's just some amazing uh, reviews. Of course, the Washington Post said that the details are too delicious to reveal. They are that um, it's why contemporary horror novelists like Hendricks are sashing their web. Uh, the I don't know how you felt about that one, but um, some some really really great reception and so what's what's the uh what's the feeling over there now that that it's out in the world and and uh you're kind of uh getting out and promoting it
1: yeah i mean it's been weird to be honest um my editor and i this book was a hard one to get right and my editor and i both felt like you know what we're proud of the book but we'll do better next time this one will connect with a small number of people and it'll be what it is and you know, the fact that it's connecting with people on a bigger scale, we just thought it was too weird and too small and too personal. And so the fact that it's connecting with people has really taken me by surprise. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm grateful and I wish I had done it on purpose.
0: <laughs> oh, you're so humble. Um, and you've been called the master of horror, of course, uh, many other really, really superlatives about your writing, but you know, you tend to, you know, take these well-worn tropes and conventions of the genre and turn them on their head. And I thought that, uh, who else had something really kind of funny to say? Was it the Esquire interview called you the clown prince of horror fiction? But yeah, uh, you know, as as has been noted, you, you kind of are this sensitive observer of the horrors that rise around us sometimes because of our attempts to grow closer to other human beings. And there really is this, this humanity piece, I think that kind of wends its way in there and obviously breathes life into these, uh, you know, kind of uh, as, you know, maybe describe your, your kind of take on what, what you are doing with the genre and kind of how you, how you approach the writing.
1: Well, with horror, it's really, um, it's funny. Uh, I really like taking these tropes that are very well worn and sort of, well, there was a reason this worked in the first place, you know, Um, it's the same thing, kind of all those British comic writers were doing, uh, in the eighties, you know, um, why does this work? How do you strip this back to basics? How do you make this feel new again? Um, and so that's really, I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about these things, you know, why are puppets and dolls scary? Why do haunted houses work? Um, and so that's a big part of the approach is the research and the sort of like time you spend thinking about this. And um, that's the hard part because it's really easy to try to move faster and take a shortcut. And then you're just sort of like repeating a cliche more often than not or something that's been done before. So that part of it is hard. And oftentimes I am very glib and facile And so that stuff works itself out in multiple drafts. So if I was a sane or writer, I'd do that work before I start writing. And instead, I write a draft that sucks, and I write another one that's not any good. And as I'm doing that, I'm slowly spending more and more time with it and really having to drill down. So it's something that happens in process, and it's not the most efficient way to work.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I hear this so often, like finding what works for you, obviously, each writer has uh, a very different approach to the to the process and the craft. Some are very workmanlike, others, um, you know, more absent-minded professor types. But yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about kind of also where you were at. I understand kind of this was written during the pandemic, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it really was, I think, two things that happened to uh, everyone during the pandemic. is One is, for the most part, you know, we missed our families and we spent a lot of time in our houses. Uh, and it's interesting. I was looking at this ghost hunting uh, survey about, you know, uh, from people who do sort of uh, their ghost hunters, you know, and they go out to people's reports. And they were saying that um, during the pandemic, they really, really saw a huge surge in the in, Haunted house reports, you know, because we're spending mm. so much time in <laughs> these ha- in our houses and we're spending them there during times of day we usually aren't there. So they seem strange and new and alien to us. So I think this was a pandemic book and I think. The thing that happened to me in the pandemic was what happened to a lot of us is we were all isolated from our families, and so I wanted to make up a family to spend time with. Um, you know, it's my little, it's my little scarecrow family. And then the third thing is I think it made a lot of us much more aware of our parents' mortality and just sort of how much, how vulnerable they were, you know, to to death and sickness. And so those were the things that were kind of the jumping off point to this book, you know, and and. It's a book, if you're going to write about families, you're going to write about haunted houses. Haunted house books are always about family for the most part. So, yeah, so that's sort of where it came from. And, you know, the biggest, and this is a bit of a tangent, so honestly, like, you know, honk the honker when I need to shut up. Um, One of the hardest things for me as a writer is not taking shortcuts. And I think there's a lot of pressure when you're writing to take shortcuts And I find that stuff only works and only really comes alive when you take the time to unpack it, to really see it fully, to really see the scene, to know know the backstory of this family. It's never going to appear on the page, but I have to know that stuff. And you you can see it on a line-by-line basis sometimes. You'll read people say, you know, he had an angry expression on his face. Well, what does that look like? You know, um, there were seven or eight trees around the house. Was it seven? Is it eight? give give me one which one is it or or there are a lot of old tires leaning against the side of the garage well what's a lot 50 100 were there a thousand old tires leaning against that garage that's a very different image than three tell me what i'm looking at and i think not taking the time to unpack those details line by line is a problem not taking the time to unpack them in terms of backstory and um you know that kind of thing is a problem what's the character wearing in this scene i don't have to let the reader know but i need to know or else to me it doesn't seem genuine but also taking the time to unpack the story um no one cares if your house is haunted i've i've heard (laughs) i've heard so many haunted house stories from people that you're like well that's interesting but but shrug it's like someone telling you their dreams um but why would someone why would someone care about a haunted house i mean this isn't my reasoning but well it's a ghost okay well what's a ghost it's a dead person so this means there's life after death okay well who's the person who's going to be the most excited to Hear about you know that there's life, proof of life after death. Well, someone who's lost someone, but we've seen that a million times. Who else would it be? Oh, maybe someone who's trying to prove that there's life after death. Maybe they're a minister. Maybe they're a parapsychologist or a sociologist who wants to bring parapsychology. You know, you got to unpack this stuff on every level and take the time, or or you're just wasting your time and the reader's time, or at least I would be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Um,
0: and it's cool to hear about that process for you so yeah i mean talk about kind of when you're finally getting into flow state once you've kind of um done the research piece and and you know feel comfortable to start really getting getting that first sucky draft down when are you hitting your stride what's what's kind of the best period look like for you uh they're all bad they're all (laughs) bad um well because for me it's um
1: I am really religious about keeping a word count every day. And I have, I have these like big ledgers that like are, they're just day, day planners, you know, they're calendars, but I write down my word count every day. And, um, I'm really religious about it. And a good day for me is between three and 5,000 words. And to me, the job is keeping my butt in the chair, um, every single day, seven days a week. Um, I've started taking Sundays off, which is probably healthy, but, um, I really have to be doing it and I have to keep it fresh and I have to keep going. And, um, but that's my job. And so, you know, and one thing I've realized is um, if it's not coming, it's because I'm doing it wrong. And so I'll shift to writing by hand or writing on a notebook or I'll go to another location or a park or a coffee shop or something just to, to mix things up and make it feel a little more fun. But really, whatever gets the words out. And, you know, and I think Neil Gaiman said this, um, if you look back at it, the day when you were faking it and just putting down bullshit words you'll fix later, and the day you were really in a flow state, you can't tell the difference later. You know, um, It's all going to go through more passes. But what I really love doing is fixing stuff, which unfortunately means you need a draft to fix, but um, there's nothing I like more than like editing. Editing's fun. And there always comes those moments where you're like, oh God, like the next three chapters are wrong and i've got to rewrite these three chapters or these three scenes and that's always sort of like really hard to make yourself jump in the cold pool at 5 a.m in the morning but it's that's you know it's it's the job this is the job and you either want to do this job or you don't want to do this job but if you want to do it this is this is the job keeping your butt in the seat taking the time to unpack things and right doing whatever's necessary being honest with yourself about what's on the page and being doing the willing to do the work that's necessary to fix it and make it right
0: yeah those are those are wise words i think uh for any writer really but i think uh, uh, another guest who was on recently um author jeffrey deaver had said something similar to the fact that you know a lot a lot of writers will talk about you know, how they can't get past the, the third chapter. And, you know, he can tell that if their commitment is flagging, if they're the people who are like, I can't stop, you know, I just can't stop writing. He knows those are the writers that are going to persevere That when the writing starts to get in the way of, like, real life stuff as opposed to the other way around where, where you're trying to find, you know, we're trying to cover out 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there, but not really, not mm-hmm. really making any headway. But yeah, I mean, I want to talk more about um, how to sell a haunted house. What is, ha- you know, kind of what's happening with all of these adaptations um, and yeah, what's next for you?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm working on it. I'm already working on the 2024 book and it's kind of a um, Rosemary's Baby set in a home for unwed mothers in 1970. Just uh, I've always been fascinated by that topic and that part of of our history and sort of What we did to these girls and i say girls not to diminish them but because people need to remember that these were 13 and 14 15 16 year old kids who were sent away from home and treated like criminals because they'd done pretty much what the most natural thing in the world is which is have sex and get pregnant um and so you know, and I find that really bizarre. Um, and that was the beginning of that big occult boom, you know, in the early '70s. And The Exorcist was big, and all that. But yeah, in terms of the adaptations, there's a lot of stuff out there. And you know, with Hollywood, it's you know, it's like it's like sea turtles. You know, many many hatch, but only a few make it to the ocean. Um, but but lots of it's optioned, and I'm really involved with with a fair chunk of it, um, like Horror Store. Is going to be a feature film we've got a director attached i've done the screenplay we're we're going out and shopping it around right now Uh, how to sell a haunted house will probably be a similar situation um i'm a writer on southern book club's guide to slaying vampires i'm a producer on final girl support group both of those are at hbo um and so i don't think i bring anything super new to the table as a producer but the one thing i've seen that's valuable is it's really easy to miss the forest for the trees because with a project like this, people spend a lot of time on it and you kind of sometimes forget what you're doing in the first place. And I'm kind of the guy who's there to remind people, um, you know, like with, with final girl support group, you know, this is basically, uh, this is the story about this group of people working together so that the most untrustworthy one of them is saved and you know those sort of basic kernels of what the story's about you know my best friend's exorcism it's two girls whose friendship's strong enough to beat satan that is very much like um it it gets lost in the mix and so i'm the guy who gets to remind people
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely um well again congrats on the latest uh new york times called it gripping wildly entertaining exploration of childhood horrors And uh, yeah, a lot going on there. Equal parts heartfelt and terrifying, a gripping new read from the horror master, Grady Hendrix. But yeah, uh, so before we leave with your just advice to fellow scribes on how to persevere, how to keep going through the good times and the bad, quick fun one for you. Um, If you could have dinner with any author from any era uh, or drinks to your favorite spot in the world, uh, who would you take and where would you take them? All expenses paid, of course.
1: Oh, oh, Shirley Jackson. And I would want, I would take her to any steakhouse because she was <laughs> a, um, she was a woman who loved food and there was nothing more indulgent and amazing. Actually, you know what? I would take her to the grand central oyster bar because Ooh. that would be the kind of place she would love. Um, uh, but yeah, nice. Shirley Jackson,
0: grand central oyster bar. Awesome. Uh, what would you drink? Uh, martinis. Uh, Perfect. I was imagining like a hot tub size, dirty martini for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we appreciate your time. And um, yeah, if you could just drop uh, your final kind of thoughts on on how to keep going.
1: Yeah, um, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, The books were doing okay, but money was tight. It was a grind. It was really, really hard. And it's tough. And they're really I guess the only advice I can give, because there really isn't any, you either stick through it or you don't. And, um, and, and that's not trying to be harsh, but it's just, you're going to, or you're not. And, um, and one thing that really, I think, um, helps or not helps. One thing I try to keep in mind is that, you know, we've all, I think, I mean, I certainly have you write a story no one reads or in a publication no one subscribes to. You do a play that no one comes to. You're in a band where you have five people in the audience. I've done book readings with three people, you know? And, um, but you just don't know who's out there. My sister, one of my sisters managed a band in Philly when she was uh, living there. And I was in high school and uh, I had their demo tape. And I thought they were amazing and there were three songs on it and I listened to them over and over and some days that's what got me to school is how much I loved their music and I I know that time in driving in my van to school would be when I could listen to their tape and they never made it they never got a record deal they did pretty well locally but they broke up after a while and no one in that band knows how much they meant to me they never met me and But they are really one of the reasons I got to school some days. And you've just got to keep, you know, shooting your bullet and hope into the dark and hoping it hits a target. And you may never know. And it may just be that one person who needs that one song you recorded on YouTube that has 22 views. You don't know, but you just keep doing it over and over again. And someone who needs it will find it. And I know that because there's been often enough times when I've stumbled across something that's small, maybe the person's retired since or given up what they're doing, but it's what I needed to find at that time.
0: Well put. Wise words. We appreciate your time. your words. You want to just, Of course, I'm going to point at your home base there, gradyhendrix.com. And um, you can find more information about a Raft of Things. And of course, I'll shout out for the How to Sell a Haunted House candle, uh, which I found here. Yeah, uh, smell it's, of fear. It's the, the smell. smell of fear candle. <laughs> it's The smell of haunted dolls. It's just what everyone's always wanted. It starts with haunted dolls and burns down to gathering storms. Um, definitely going to pick up a couple of those. But I appreciate your time, and I'd love to have you back in the future to talk more about horror and all things writing, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Thanks, man. Let's do it when we have more time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.